It's a real honor and a privilege to be here. Um, you know, I love this place. I love what God's doing in your church. Um, I have my, you know, I'm, I'm not, a, I'm not a, a gift. I don't come as a gift of a prophet to you by any means. Uh, but, I, but I have these little predictions that always come out in my spirit. You know, I'm, I'm the king of stating the obvious. You know, the, you know the one prophet that says, he sees you going down a, a, a rough road and he says, Thus saith the Lord, if I go down that road, I shall be hurt. You know, it's just stating the obvious. So, yeah, okay. You know, but I'm the king of stating the obvious. And, and this church, if I've had to state the obvious, has got all, the, all the, 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 the road signs of a great move of God and um, a good, strong voice in the city and a, and a body that would create great influence. And it has all the signs of that. So I'm really happy, really, to be a part of it at the early stages. And, um, and see God working amazing ways in your lives. And I think some of you sitting here today haven't um, had, had the, the portal view of that yet, of what God's going to do in your life. But 10 years from now, you'll look back and, and see that because you partnered in a, in, a, in a vision that God had for the city, He expands your world and changes your life completely, sets you on, on a journey that... Um, that is way beyond average, and uh, you can only look back and see that, and, and right now, it's just partnering. It's just staying in the team, staying uh, fixed in what God set you on, so I'm just happy to be a part of it. I want to introduce Sharon, my wife, to you. Um, she is actually a really incredible woman. Um, she doesn't have an accent anywhere in the world. <laughs> she was born in Portugal, raised in Brazil as a missionary kid in the interior of Brazil, went to Brazilian interior schools and graduated there and went straight into global travel uh, for the kingdom and hasn't stopped since. So we've been traveling for quite a while. Actually, this is our nearly our 20th year with not having a summer. So we haven't had summer in 20 years, literally. We moved from American winters to African winters and then African winters to American winters. We did six months in the southern hemisphere, six in the north, but we travel a lot. So, Sharon. Thank you. You know you've trained your husband well when he introduces you by saying you're a wonderful woman. <laughs> Ladies, I worked hard for that. <laughs> um, I just want to greet you. Um, I want to let you know that this church for us is, has become home. It really has, Adrian. Um, this is Overland Missions Church in Johannesburg. There is no other church we go to. Our staff come to Johannesburg a lot of the time because this is, you know, the place where you can get everything you can't get up north. So we come down here. And whenever anybody is here, this is the church that they come to. There's no other church in the city that we send our guys to. We send it here. And so we feel real at home here. We really do. We know, like Philip said, that God is moving in this place, that he's growing. In fact, there's already a huge change from last year. The number of people that are here, you've increased since last year. And, and that's the goodness of God. I mean, who doesn't, who doesn't want to share what God has done in their lives? Who doesn't want to be able to impact someone else's life with the power of the gospel? The one thing I love about this religion that we have, let's call it a religion, this, this life that we have as compared to all other religions is because this has carries the power of God inside of it. It's not a mental ascension. It's not a a good works kind of religion. It's not a do this so that this can happen to you. It is a, a religion. I'm calling it religion. It's not a religion. It is, a, it is the truth that says that Christ has done it all. He's done it all. There is nothing lacking in what Christ has done for you on the cross. When he died and he rose from the dead, he accomplished in that event everything you need to live, to succeed, and the power of God is found in that. And who doesn't want to be able to share that with all of Johannesburg? This city needs to know, and you are that voice. We have, we are, by the grace of God, increasing year after year, just like your churches. We've opened more bases since we were here last year. This year, we just had the privilege, for the first time, I went to Israel. Uh, my dad's been there, my dad's um, mom have been a missionary's been missionaries for nearly 50 years. 
in various countries, but mainly in Brazil, which is where I grew up. And they have lived a life after God, after God. My dad is the most, he's an Irishman. He's the most excitable Irishman you will ever know. He doesn't know how to speak without dancing because he's so full of joy. And he turned 80 years old this year in God because God has and cannot ever let him down. Um, so this year, he, he, my father and my mother had been to Israel a few times and told me the stories. And, you know, you, your heart just wants to go there and see everything. This year we went and we actually stayed in, in Bethlehem. We stayed in Bethlehem. Um, right, we were, well, you can't really say that Jesus was born there, but that it's where they say Jesus was born. We were a few hundred feet from where he was born. We stayed there in the Palestinian area. You walk into the Palestinian area and you've, ex you've exited Israel and you are in, in an Arab country. It's amazing. You're in Israel, but you're in an Arab country and the food is Arab and it, it's completely different. But at, we were walking there and just seeing all the sites. You turn to this place and, and this is where Abraham is buried. You turn to this place and this is where David um, walked his sheep before, Jesus, um, before God called him to be king. I mean, it's the most amazing um, historical land to see. And this year, we've opened up a base in Palestine. And we are sending six people there that are going to be preaching the gospel to those Arabs that, have, that live in that area that just testifies and speaks about Jesus, but that means nothing to them. It means nothing. And yet, we have a team. God's opened a door. We have a team that is there to show them not not talk about the sites, not talk about events as a historical event, but to talk to them about the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ, who is as real today as it was then. And the power of Christ who is able to cause love to be birthed inside of them when there is so much hate because of the oppression that they live under. This is the gospel that we have. It is able, it breaks down every barrier, every culture, every perception against God. Because it's not about a, a, a religion that it's about knowledge or an intellectual one. But it is about the power of Christ. Let me just show you this verse in 1 Corinthians or 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians chapter 1 verse 19 and 20 says this. For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, whom we pro proclaimed amongst you, Silvanus and Timothy and I, was not yes and no, but in him it is always yes. For all the promises of God find their yes in Christ Jesus. This entire book, from cover to cover, every single promise that you can read, that you can find, that you can dig out, and it is packed full of those. All of them meet themselves and find their confirmation and they yes in Jesus Christ. The power of the gospel that you carry, the word that you have, the spirit that lives inside of you is enough to change this entire city. Whatever vision you have for this church, however big you think you want to see this church, let me tell you, it's too small. Because when we're talking about glorifying God, he deserves it all. When we're talking about what is God able to do, can I just encourage you? I don't know if you have a daily reading plan, but go get yourself a daily reading plan and read this word on a, a continual basis. Because whatever goal, whatever dream you have for your life and you think maybe this is too much, Start reading what God has done in the lives of his saints. It's what you dream for about. It's nothing. It's nothing. If you start seeing what God has done for his saints in scripture, nothing is impossible for me. Is anything too hard for me, says the Lord. Nothing is impossible for him. So I believe this church is going to impact this city in such a way because it's not about words. It's about the power of God actually changing people's lives and bringing freedom to them and bringing life and restoration and healing and deliverance, opening the eyes of the blind. We see that happen so many times. Opening the eyes of the blind, not only in the physical, we see it in the physical, but in actuality where we see which doctors coming to Christ and being the most faithful servants of him.
because they find in him a power so much greater than the power of darkness. So I just want to declare to you, you are blessed. You are blessed beyond anything that you can dream or imagine. It is in you. It is, has done for you, has already been done for you. You don't have to work at it. You don't have to faith it. You just have to rest your soul and your heart in Christ Jesus because he has done it all for you. Amen. Hallelujah. Thank you. Next time, I'll have her preach, and I'll do the introduction. <laughs> well, I was, uh, for those that don't know me, I'll, I'll give you a quick kind of 35-foot flyover, 35,000-foot flyover. Um, I was, um, I'm a South Africa. I was born in East London in a little corner of South Africa. Uh, my mother was British. My dad was obviously from Durban, so he's an English-speaking South African. Um, and um, I was born again at the age of 14 in a, in a radical church in, that was having a move of God at the time in that, in that city. And I was a young surfer. My vision was just to surf. had no other vision in life. <laughs> Nothing else appealed to me. And I was surfing competitively in South Africa, and I was, I was doing very well. I was national uh, at surfing from coast to coast, and as a young, young surfer, and, and I got invited to a meeting where they said there will be a surfer preaching, uh, a surfer uh, speaking. I'd never been to church. I never knew anything about, my parents never took me to church. There was nothing in our world, our family. So there'll be a surfer there, and, and, and so I went to this meeting, and, this, and, this, and Dr. Leon Van Royen is a legend, and, and he's on my board today. Um, got up and began to share his testimony of how he was a surfer. And I didn't know it was a, a church service. I thought it was like a motivational surfers meeting. <laughs> so when they did the appeal, they said, is there anyone here who's never met Christ? Well, I lifted my hand because, I mean, he died 2,000 years ago. I couldn't believe that no one else lifted their hand. I was like, <laughs> before I knew it, there were ashes down the line standing around me taking me to the front. So then I was standing in the front thinking, okay, now I'm in a skit. Now they're going to bring some guy dressed like Jesus out, and I'm, gonna, I'm part of the skit now. I didn't know that I was actually in the, in the place of actual salvation, you know. Um, and then I remember clearly um, Dr. Van Royen saying, say these words after me. Jesus Christ, thank you that you died upon the cross for me. Thank you, Dad. I'm, I thank you that you paid for my sins. Thank you that your blood covers me. And I was like saying, and as I was saying these things, out of my spirit came liberty and freedom. And tears began. And I was like, and now I'm crying in public before like 150 surfers that I surf against in competitions. And I don't know why I'm crying. Like, why am I crying? I have no reason to cry. I'm not sad. I'm not, I'm not, nothing wrong with me. I was not a needy person, you know. And, um, and God touched my life in a miraculous way. That I got born again that moment. As I confessed him, I got, I got saved. And filled with the Holy Spirit, speaking in tongues. I was like, now what's going on with me? <laughs> you tell me now what is happening to me because I'm babbling some other language. And the power of God touched my life that day. And, um, and I'm so thankful for it. And he took a simple life who's predictable. The, pr the predictable life that I was in was an East Londoner who would live an East Londoner's life. And God took that paradigm out of my life miraculously. And I couldn't see East London. It wasn't like part of me. In fact, took everything natural out of me in a moment took the whole crisis in South Africa of discrimination out of me. It wasn't in me. That confusion of discrimination that, was, that, that the country had kind of profiled us by, when came out of me in a miracle. Color meant nothing. Creed, nothing. Language, nothing. Just all people just became valuable on the highest levels by a miracle. Not by some psychological persuasion, 
some, some, it was a miracle of God. It touched my life and um, touches your lives. And I, I'm thankful for it because, I mean, I could be stuck here right now. And, um, and God, and then, so when I, was, um, when I was 19, finished my military service, um, I got drafted at that time, um, and there's probably people here in the room who were drafted with me, into a 6-1 mechanized Bravo company, which means that was the, the fighting force, fighting arm of South Africa at the time. It was the mechanized units that would go into battle. And South Africa hadn't been in battle at that point since 1980, since 1982. So it was 1987 I was in. So I had, hadn't fought in like six, seven years in big battles. And Bravo Company was just a training unit that we just trained. Well, we didn't know that that year was the year that Bravo Company was going to fight the largest land battle in Africa since World War II in a battle called Quito Carnival in, in Angola. I was on the front line of every single battle for nine months, just drafted. Here I am. My brother got drafted to the Navy. I was like, two weeks on, two weeks off in Durban as a signaler. <laughs> I was stuck in Angola swatting flies for nine months. Um, but um, anyway, God took me out of that, out of that military experience. I remember um, we, we started that battle in, in, in November of 1987, and we finished the battle in, 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 in early May, the first, the big, the big battle. If you know Central Africa, November to May, you don't drive your trucks up north because it's rainy season. It rains up north. In those, it doesn't rain. It's not like South Africa. The rains stop in the, the last week of April, and they start in in the first week of October. It doesn't drop between the two. But when it rains, make sure your vehicles are in your garages because they get stuck. You won't pull them out till, till April. So your vehicles get stuck in November. They don't come out of the mud until April. And you know when you get back there, they don't have wheels. <laughs> they don't have engines. They don't have seats. So you can't get stuck. Well, um, we, we endeavored that, that military experience all through the rainy season. And, um, and we crossed those rivers, and we moved our vehicles in and out in the heart of African rainy season, in central Angola, not on one government road, all making our own roads in, in sand and mud. So what it did for me was it kind of concluded something, that whenever people tell you you can't go, it's not really true. Whenever they tell you it, hasn't, it can't be done, the person educating you hasn't tried. And so um, I came out of that with this kind of like little rough around the edges um, in my life. And, but I was a believer. The whole time I carried my guitar, my Bible, and I preached the word to the, uh, the, the Unita rebels forces every, before every battle. I had about 30 to 40 around my vehicle, teaching them the gospel, leading them to Christ. We went into battle, they'd give us new battalions because the rebels were dying like flies. So they were just leading to Christ and then they were, we were dead, burying them in shallow graves and just moving on. And I was there when unmoved by the, by the war, unmoved by the hardships, unmoved by, and you know, I'll tell you something, truth. 27 of my fire group went in. Only four of us finished out of that battalion, out of our fire group. That's out of East London, out of our team, out of our friends. My driver committed suicide in just... Two months after the battle, all of my units mainly evacuated with, ca with casualty and, and, and hepatitis B from uh, bio, biochemical uh, warfare that they were putting against us and malaria. And four of us finished. I finished. I was, one, I was the guy with the Bible in hand, guitar, the one guy you think would, would bail first. Finished. And... and um, Came out unscathed, no nightmares, no, no PTSD. And we had, a, we had the military, um, the, the Australian military sent us a whole team of, of, of um, special forces up to our Zambia base. And they came through on a tour and they wanted me to brief them one night because they heard I was a veteran of South African wars. So I don't have a real high tolerance for PTSD. It exists. I totally understand it. 
and, and, we, and, and there's, there's elements of PTSD that are still in our lives. Like my kids can't jump me, jump me in the middle of the night. <laughs> you know, come and jump, give me a fright. They know that because I'll, I'll like for three days, I'll be thinking someone's going to jump me, you know. <laughs> I'll be looking around for three days. I mean, there's certain elements you have to deal with as fact. It's not something you deny. But I'm telling you, the kingdom of God is so much greater than, than the, est, that the terrestrial things of this world that we have in God. I got it. I was like in it. I didn't suffer these things. I came through 20, 21 years old, out of the military, and with a call of God in my life, and I said to my mom and dad in those years, that was 1989. Remember 1989 in South Africa as a 20-year-old as a white kid with expatriate family, British family, saying, you better get out of this country because there's going to be no jobs here, and, and you better get an education, and you better... And, and I said to my dad, I said, I'm going to be a preacher. <laughs> my dad is not a Christian. He went, you're kidding me, right? <laughs> you are gonna, you're going to be eating out of a dumpster. You cannot. He said, trust me. God's going to provide. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to preach the gospel. And I'm going to preach it not in the suburbs of South Africa. I'm going north. You're going to find me in Tanzania and Congo and Angola. And he's like, oh, my gosh. Because my son's <laughs> gone crazy. You're never going to survive. I'm going to have to support you the rest of your life. And um, I remember that night with my dad and mom. I, I paid for dinner with my measly little military salary, which was like 120 rand or some ridiculous amount. I paid for dinner, and I said, I'm paying for this dinner. And, um, and it's the beginning of God's provision. And, that's, and it's been started. <laughs> I think, I don't know if I told you this last time, but when, when I launched out, so I said to my dad, I'm going. I'm going to Malawi take my Bible, I'm going to go to Malawi, and I'm just going to get there, and I'm just going to preach my heart out. People there need, need me. Other people don't want to go. I'll go. So I said, just take me to the, to, to the, to the highway, the N, N, whatever it is, from East London to, to Queens, to, to Bloemfontein, which meets the N1, I believe. So just drop me off on the highway, and then I'll hitchhike all the way up, and I'll, and I'll see you whenever I see you. I'll come back in a couple of years. So my dad gave me a pocket knife. My mom gave me a raincoat. It was my party gift, a raincoat. And dropped me off on the road. And at 5 o'clock in the morning, I shook their hands and hugged them. And dad was like, okay, I'm proud of you. Go for it, boy. So I, I wait on the road. And I get a ride to King Williamstown. It's 50 kilometers away. And I'm now in King Williamstown all day till 5 p.m. waiting for this ride. And you know, it's like, you can't get stuck in King Williamstown. You just can't. There's nothing there. So I'm like, and, and these farmers were passing me all day, waving at me. So they're dropping off stuff. So at about 5 p.m., a farmer comes past, and he picks me up. He, he's coming back now towards King. And he says, um, he says listen, I'm, I see you standing here all day. Dude, you can't, you can't stay here all night. I'm going back to East London. You can jump in with me. And I'll drop you back off, and then you can do this tomorrow again. So I said, okay. So I jumped in the car with him. I went back to East London, and I walked up to my house and knocked on the door. My dad opened the door. And it was like 6 o'clock. He goes, good start. You know, great, great start. Good start. Great start to this phenomenal ministry, this provision of God, this, this great future. And I said, tomorrow morning, 5 o'clock, would you drop me off again? So 5 o'clock in the morning, I stood on the side of the road. And, and a guy, first guy that came past picked me and dropped me off in Ellawell North, which is, you know, if you know Ellawell North, it's, well, it's too far to go home, number one, and a horrible place to get stopped, to get stuck. I stopped in Ellawell, and, and that was the beginning. And I landed into Malawi um, and preached in Malawi, and then God took this ministry, birthed this ministry in, in villages where... where <laughs> where it's been the greatest privilege, I'm telling you. It is, it is, there's nothing like it. There's no greater privilege. I mean, we've had privilege, what they call privilege. We've been with the kings and the presidents and the, the, the red carpets, and we've been honored in, in, in Madison Square Gardens and the, the World Natural History Museum of New York and, and D.C. And it's just, we've been honored in all these places. It's, it's nothing compared to sitting in a village with the people with the call of God and the touch of God and the, and the, and the, and the, the, the whole redemptive plan of God for them and nobody has issued them 
their Bill of Rights yet. Nobody's come and said, you're included. And you lack nothing. There's no privilege as great as that. So let me tell you, the first trip in Malawi, the first trip we got, I got to was, um, was a, it took weeks to get there, by the way. It wasn't like I just got a ride to Malawi. It was a weeks. <laughs> it took weeks. And um, besides running out of money and all the way up and God providing in a miraculous way in multiple levels, um, I got to this first appointment where this missionary had said, if you come to Malawi, I'll get so much preaching appointments for you, you'll be busy for all year. And I got to him and I said, I'm here. So he gave me this motorbike and this interpreter and he said, if you go down the Zomba Plateau to this church, started this church and preach there. And I was so excited because this is the beginning of, of the ministry. And remember, the word of God is burning in my heart. Not the preaching swagger of modern Christianity. I'm talking about the word of God, the richness of his gift towards mankind in his son Christ Jesus, which is alive and living and touches people and, and transforms their life before your eyes. And they look at you with sparkle in their eyes and go, thank you for coming, for delivering the word of God. That word is burning in me. So I got to the first meeting on this motorbike and, um, and I got to the village and the interpreter jumps off and he speaks to the two old Chichewian men there and says, you know, gather the church. I believe there's a church here. And they say, yes, we're part of that movement. We'll, we'll get together. And these two old guys sit down on a bench and I go, okay, so, so where's the church, you know? And they said, no, it's us. We're it. This is your first place. This is, this is the church. And I'm like, okay, well, I'll be here for three days. I'm going to preach for three days to two old guys who will die within the next week or two. <laughs> not, not ever recommend my ministry to anybody else. I'm not going to go from here. This is not a great launch pad. Number one. Number two, they spoke Chichewa and not English, so they could barely understand anything I was saying. I was not fulfilling some massive ministry. And I was just saying to the Lord, you know, I was like, okay, good start again. You know, this is, this is like, is this it? You know, is this, is this it? Because I'll do whatever you tell me. This is it. And the Lord just said to me, this is exactly it. I would send you. I would make you sit before your parents and persuade them that your career needs to be put on the line for this gospel. I would make you stand on that side of that road. I'll make you go through Zimbabwe and, and through that Mozambican corridor during the war and to get to these people, risk your life. I'll make you go into Blantyre, middle of the night, try and find a place to stay and get, and get to these two people who would never, would, would, no one in the world would ever, ever think they are valuable. I will make it because I see them valuable. It was enough for me. I was done. I could see the world in them. I could see the whole gospel revealed in them. I could see God's whole kingdom without lack in them. And I ministered to those two guys. From that day, doesn't matter the crowd, the size, I see two Malawian, Chichewian men. I see these two old guys that God would take all of his attention from around, from the whole global thing and lift his eyes to these two guys and go, my whole world, God's saying, revolves around these two guys and I'm moving you to them. And God, and God, because God does that to you. It's his omniscience. He focuses his all of his attention upon you and, 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 and delivers his gospel to you, you know. And so for us as a ministry, was always focused on remote people. So from that time, we built teams around the world to deploy to remote people. And it's been amazing. <laughs> we have been on adventures. We have driven this continent. Um, we have, we have it currently around over 100 SUVs, four-wheel drives, um, in sub-Saharan Africa. Um, and I think it's in the numbers of 120 or so that are driving, that are go-to people and, and live amongst people and share the gospel with people. We have um, a base in, in Mozambique, in Angola, in, um, in Morocco, Tangiers, in Zanzibar, in um, all over Zambia, in Congo, um, Tanzania, um, and expanding into other parts of Africa all the time. Um, we have a base in Brazil on the Amazon with two, two river boats, big river boats. 
We have a phenomenal team in Laos, Cambodia, and actually in Cambodia, and now a team in Laos. Laos is a completely closed country, completely closed. You cannot, you cannot, you go into Laos, you, you close all co communications on all gospel levels. Everything goes through encrypted software from that point on. We have people in Laos right now. We have people in France studying French for Congo. We have people in Portugal studying Portuguese for our Portuguese-speaking countries, and, um, and it's been pretty, pretty extreme and, and, and a privilege in Overland Missions to work around the world. And uh, if I get a chance, I'll, I'll share some more of those great testimonies that we've seen in the continent of Africa. But I want to start with a verse this morning um, to tee this up. And it's in, in Titus, and Paul speaking to Titus. And he says this to Titus. He says, for this reason, I left you in Crete, that you should set in order the things that are lacking. I love that, like, one, like, all-consuming statement. For this reason, I left you in Crete, that you would set in order the things that are lacking. And you may ask, what's your purpose? Why are you stuck in Johannesburg? Why are you stuck in your suburb? For this reason, I left you in Crete, that you would set in order the things that are lacking. You know, um, don't be confused about the generation you're living in. There is a lot of disorder all around you. The entire generation is in disarray and disorder. Not only the economies, not only the, the, the one world government trying to take over everything, but, but the people's lives, the, the, the individual cultures, the melt, melting pot of cultures that is going on around the world is that the design of the enemy to create disorder, dysfunction in the generation on so many levels. There's only one place from which function comes. It's you with the gospel, not you. Not just you with your sexy swagger. That's the problem, really. It's you with the gospel, bringing order to your life and bringing order to the generation. To bring order to a generation, you must know order. You must know order. You cannot be confused about your world and your life and God's order in your life. You can't be so weak and, and, and fragile that you are a quintessential consumer. You can't be just the consumer. You got teed up by Johannesburg, by South African consumerism. They teed you perfectly. They, they planned you. They, 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 you, you like, you like a, a, um, your generation is like, like um, the design center here was made just for you. You were planned to be the perfect consumer for that world. And those, those, those elements there, those those perfect elements. When you go there, it's so perfect. You know, it's like, wow, that would look perfect in my house. You, you would just say that the whole time. Wow, I need one of those. That would just look great right in the corner. You know, it was like you were teed up for that. It was like a set. It was like a drama. They planned it. They knew you. They knew the colors you're going to like. They knew the clothes you're going to respond to. They knew it. And they set it all in place. And when you get there, you go, it's amazing. I don't know how they just always have the right things at the right place. It's all been set up. Because they predict you. You're predictable. They predict your, your, because the generation was teed up to consume. And you can't be so fragile and, and weak to that system. I'm not saying don't make your houses nice. Abuse that system. You know what I mean? You can, you're welcome to abuse it because if you're above it, you're reigning and ruling. You can do it. But if, you, if you've been ruled by it, then you've really got to get your head out of the clouds. Um. And, um, and God wants to really take his church and rule and reign in this chaos, that, this, this chaos. You know, God um, works in chaos. And the Bible says, and the spirit hovered over the chaos of the waters. It was like number one, number one element that God reigns. Whenever there's chaos, the spirit of God is hovering over the chaos of the waters. It's like, there's chaos in the generation, but we're here. It's okay. We're going to be, and we're not going to give, we're not going to like, like sell our flag out. 
We're not going to give up our culture for a melting pot of cultures. You know, the, the, the biggest, one of my board of directors, actually, of Overland Missions, is a name, his name is Dr. Matthew Kuhncomb. And Matthew is the grand chief of the first, all First Nations of Canada. So all of the Cree and the Blackfoot and the Crow and the, um, the other Indian tribes of Canada, all of them are under, under the grand chief, Matthew Kuhncomb. He's a very, very interesting, interesting red Indian. Now that's discriminatory in Canada, but in Africa we can call him a red Indian because all the chiefs here call him the red Indian. But um, he, um, he at, the, at an early age, um, uh, when he was a young kid, he grew up in a teepee in, in Quebec, Canada, and um, the Canadian government went in and took all the kids out of Canada, the Indian kids, and shipped them to boarding schools outside of their Creek and Indian communities, and they grew up in boarding schools, and the, 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 the plan, the Canadian plan was take the language out of the Cree, out of the Indians, so we can emerge them, immerse them into Canadian um, civilization, ultimately so that we, they don't claim rights to the land. Because remember, the whole north of Canada is ruled by the Indians. All of the minerals, all the gold, all the wood, all the rivers, all the fish, all the lakes, all the gateways, now because of the hydroelectric scheme, all the electrics owned by the Cree, owned by the Indians. So let's take the kids and let's, let's put them in boarding schools and change their language. It was their plan. So the Cree kids would go for, for like eight months, ten months at a time and go home for like six weeks all their lives. In that time, in those boarding schools, they were abused sexually, they were abused physically, and it was a terrible thing. So, so Matthew, his dad was the grand chief. His dad said, Go learn the ways of the white man. You know, like Red Indian. Go, go learn the ways of the white man. And then use those things against him. So Matthew became a doctor of law. Canadian doctor of law. And then uh, became the grand chief. And sued the Canadian government for four billion Canadian dollars for what they did to his tribe, the Cree. The Cree of Quebec only have 19,000 people in the Cree. That's all. 19,000 people is nothing. But they own the entire north of Quebec. I mean, they're in small communities, but they, they're hunting grounds of the whole north. So Canada had to, had, to, had to identify the Quebec as ruled by the Cree. He sued them and won the court case. And they gave it $4 billion for the Cree, which he manages today. And, um, and changed the Canadian Constitution from a, a ruling that said Indians don't have can um, only have privileges, not rights. Can you believe that? The Canadian Constitution, up until about seven years ago, said Indians only have privileges, not rights. He changed the Canadian Constitution and went for it. He's a phenomenal guy. Just a Cree. He spends you know, six months of his year in, in the Cree areas, hunter trapping. It's because they, their nation is hunter trappers. So they trap. I went with him and we shot a, a caribou, together, and we um, ate a black bear. It's pretty, pretty, just cool, but we ate a black bear. Um, and um, anyway, Matthew, Matthew declared, you know, said something to me that, that was very true amongst all, all tribes, was that today there's one major problem in all tribes around the world. One, one simple problem. The fathers of the tribes are all asking the same question. How do we maintain our culture with our children? Because they're melting into the system. You've got the Cree looking full-on Indian in, in, their, in their war dress, and their kids are pulling with the, with the hat on sideways, earphones in, Nikes, pants halfway down around their, around their knees, and walking into the meetings. And the Cree are going, oh my gosh. What happened? Because we don't mind how they dress, but did they carry our culture? And um, we had the same amongst all the cultures in Africa, where we work heavily with the, um, with the Lunda and the Lubales and the Tonga and the Bemba 
got some Bemba here today. I spoke to this Bemba, Bemba uh, boy here. Where are you? Zambian. There you are. Um, and the Bemba and the, and the, the, the Chichewa and the Chewa and the Nyanja, we work heavily with these tribal leaders and these chiefs. And they all have the exact same thing. They get together and go, we don't know where the youth are going. They're not carrying the culture. They're not carrying a culture that carries our story. And it's very, very true. And you scratch your head and you look at it and you go, there's a problem. The only thing I'm telling you is the same thing's happening in the church. Where the older people all understand the culture. It's not just religiosity. It's a culture. They understand the culture. The culture of Pentecost. The culture of the move of God in the body of Christ. The culture of awesome lordship and respect for Jesus. You know, I was with, um, um, Sharon was telling me when she was, when, before we got married, she met this prophet Vaughn Gerald, who Vaughn and I traveled together for 25, 30 years. One of the most craziest out of the box people I've ever met in my life, but a legend, absolute legend. The first meeting she met with Vaughn, she came in with a guy that was interested in her. I think I, I hope I tell the story right, but um, <laughs> in England, in little in England where everything's so like proper. And this Vaughn Vaughn Gerald was out of England, a Londoner, but traveled the world, and and God wrecked him, and radical, big English, six foot five, big voice. And, this, and they're all standing in, up front. He calls out all these people, and they're standing, and, and this guy comes up, and he's a timid English guy. stands up, and he's, and he's a pastor's son, and, and he's, been in, you know, he's seen it all. And he's standing up front with his hands in his pockets like this, waiting for a word from God. Hands in his pockets. And the prophet looks at the boy with his hands in his pockets before God. He doesn't see like a pastor's kid being in church. He sees a guy whose culture is now different from someone who honor and respect the presence of God. So he rebukes the kid from a dizzy height. Get your hands out of your pockets in the church, in England, in proper English. He said, please, sir, hello, how are you doing? Sorry, would you please remove your hands? You know, England, no. Get your hands out of your pockets. You know, there's a, there's a, there is a, a culture in the kingdom that is a real culture, and there's a behavior in the, in the, in the world that's out of order. It's honestly out of order. You can say, oh, that's the millennial generation. That's how they act. I don't care. Call them whatever you want. Don't stand in there with, before God with your hands in your pockets. I'm just, it's an illustration, by the way. Don't, don't, don't get walking condemnation now. There's times to put your hands in your pockets, and there's times not to. But... In a sense of this, when God has a mission, when he has a vision for the, for the generation, it's far greater than what you know the world to be. I'll tell you another story. Last year, we, um, we were pioneering a new base up in, up in the Congo-Angola border of Zambia. So there's three lands there, and um, there are three areas up there that we're putting bases amongst the, the Chokwe the Luvala and the Lunda tribes. And the chiefs of those areas gave us 500 hectares in each location. So that's like 1,000 acres, I think. Do you work in hectares or acres? Acres. Hectares. 500 hectares. And those areas, and they are pristine areas. I'm talking, you drive for about six hours at 120 kilometers an hour, and you see three levels of teak forest canopies until you get to our land. It's so far out, and it's pristine, it's different. It's like, it's going back hundreds of years in Africa. So we were pioneering this, these new bases, and I got to this one base called, in a place called Munilunga, where you guys have been, I'm sure. Um, so Munilunga is, 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 if you drive from Lusaka, about uh, 12 hours towards Angola, in the very far corner of Zambia, on the Congo border, where the Zambezi starts. Zambezi starts in Munilunga. goes into Congo, back in Angola, and back into Zambia, into Mozambique, and the ocean. Um, there is the tribe under a paramount chief, Kanangesha, of the Lunda. 
So Kanan Geshe is a really close friend, a born-again Christian, and he gave us this land, and he said, please bring your, your, your deploy your people here so you can influence our people into the future, because you know the next 20 years, things are going to change. The Chinese are going to come for the teak. We know that. They're going to build a train through, from Luanda to, to Dar es Salaam. It's going through Munilunga. So we're like, oh, we better get to these people. So we got there, and we got the land, and, and um, Shoshara and I did a crusade. So Kanangesha said, come to the palace and do a crusade at the palace. It's in the middle of nowhere. It's five kilometers from the Angola border, and it's like, it's like the movie um, Madagascar. Remember the movie Madagascar with the Lima on a throne? Kanangesha on the throne, same thing, exactly the same. People bringing him pineapples, and he's waving him down. He's like... <laughs> It's full on like another world, but it's another world out there. Thousands and thousands and thousands of people doing it. So we get there and we come to Paris and we have a crusade and they gather all the churches, I think about 17 churches for three days. And, and in that time, it was our first meetings amongst Kanagesha's region. And we began to preach that day and night under the cheek forest. We ran a little generator, ran the lights through the trees and the people gathered and we just preached. Now we have to preach the gospel. It's not, not um, some culturally relevant, nice, topical sermons. It's the gospel, the transforming power of the blood of Jesus that, that, that spilt upon the earth from Calvary within the plan of God to redeem man. And you're part of his plan. And this is how the blood works. And this is how the name works. And this is how the cross is relevant to you. I mean, just preach the word. Jesus, the mystery. Christ in you, the hope of glory. Just preach the word. Whether, you, whether it translates perfectly across the interpreters or not, you just go. Because you've got to set a tone in the atmosphere. That's what you do in a crusade. Most people don't remember what you say, they just remember the tone of your voice. So we just preach. We come and we start preaching. First night, people come and it's a powerful night. And people get saved and touched and healed. And, and we're just really feeling the atmosphere, how the meeting's going. The second day, morning is great, lunchtime great. The chief brings a sable antelope. They kill a sable, bring out all the meat, and we're cooking it in stew, and there's this cutting up sable on a table at the campsite. It's chaos. But anyway, um, it's carnal, very old school. But um, so the next evening, Chief Kanagesha says, tonight I'm going to be in the service with you. And I was like, ooh, okay. Now the Lunda people, when they greet the chief, they don't just bow they bow and roll at the same time. So you must gotta, we're going to have like 200 people bowing and rolling on the ground. <laughs> and I'm there declaring that Jesus deserves the, is worthy. So I'm like looking, okay, there's going to be a little bit of a power struggle here. <laughs> people are going to want to honor you, and I'm getting them to honor him. So, so I'm like, mm, it's going to be tough. But come sit, so they put a throne out for him, and he sits there in the meeting, and I begin to share the word at night, and the power of God hits that service, like all services, um, <clears throat> where, he's, where he's glorified. So the meeting goes this way. About 80 people come up for prayer. Now, they're mostly believers, so they're churches, so I don't like, wasn't really pushing salvation. I was just pushing an encounter with God, so they're not living in religion. That's what I was like kind of going for. And um, so the, the first, I just look, I don't know what to do. I was like looking at the guy, the 80 people now in, the, in this darkness. I've got to start praying for people. It's getting a little risky. I'm in the crowd. I'm away from the guys. I'm thinking, how am I going to do this? So I pick on one kid. He's like 25 years old. I say, you, I'm going to pray for you first. And as I walk towards him, this guy manifests a demon in front of me and the paramount chief, Kanangesha, but a demon that wants to kill me. Like, full on, I'm going to kill you, demon. And I'm like, okay, I'm about to die. I'm going to first headbutt him as he hands towards me. I'm thinking of all the ways out of this, because this guy's going to kill me. You know, I'm thinking of all these things, like, going through my head. So I'm like, okay. And then I realize, okay, no, I'm, I'm going to cast that demon out. It's all, my only, only weapon in the name above every name, the name of Jesus. I got, and I deal with this demon right in front of Kanangesh. He gets like, because he's there to protect me. You must understand tribal. He's, if, if white man dies in meeting, in Kanangesh's palace, it's an international event. You can't have, and his tribesmen attack me. 
oh, it's just going to go crazy. So he's like, this is going to get south very quickly. So I deal with this demonic power, and the kid disappears into the crowd. Like, it's just like, he just like, where'd he go? I don't know, he just went, he just like kind of like salted into the crowd. So I was like, okay, let's just keep moving like nothing happened. You know what I mean? Keep going. <laughs> Minutes later, another guy comes out of the service, exact same demon, wants to kill me. With this, I'm going to kill you look on his face. So I deal with the demon again. Now I'm realizing that's like weird. And he salters into the crowd and disappears. No, no, no display of anything. So I'm now starting a little crazy as an evangelist. I'm like, I'm going to deal with this thing. You know, this is what I'm thinking. Mate. I'm going to deal with this demon now. I'm going to get in there. I'm going to play hands on every person here. I'm going to find every. It will go till 2 in the morning. I'm not stopping. I'm going to lay hands on everyone. Because you remember, the laying on of hands is like an impartation of a culture of God. It's like an elder of your tribe. It's like the chief coming, laying hands on you, and you feel like you're part of that. It's like part of the culture of the kingdom, laying hands on, on the saints. So I said, I'm going to lay hands. I get in the middle. I now got a whole crowd of people around me. I'm like going and going. And I realize now that something's going on around me. And this lady, dressed in a, a shitenge, starts Muhammad Ali dancing around me, like sparring me. She's now got a circle around me, and she's sparring, full on like fly like a butterfly, sting like a bee. You know, it's like a demon. I'm like, look, I'm like between laughing and and. Crying, I don't know what to do with her. Look at this lady, like she's gonna trip. And, and, and but if she comes at me, and I'm thinking, like, I'm just gonna hit her once, just boom, <laughs> just like because you gotta think. I mean, she's full on sparring me, she's running towards me and jumping, and then like and like faking me out. So I'm like, geez, and then she's like following, like, something okay, she does that again. And like, okay, well, I'm just gonna if she comes in, I'm just gonna have to hit her. I, I don't know what else to do. I mean, like, it's dark, it's like I'm getting attacked by this lady. So this is like, and that thought, by the way, is like a split second. I didn't really meditate on that. I'm like aggressive. I don't like, I hate fighting. I don't want to fight. So I think I can deal with this demon. At that point, I deal with a demon. That same, same thing, I'm going to kill you thing. And, um, and I deal with it, and I realized at that point in the service that this was not a demon. This is not like a, this is a principality. This is something over the people. This is like, over a tribe, it like dominates, it's like ruling over a nation. And it's just living there for centuries in these people's midst. And just jumping from person to person. I'm just going to take on that guy, then I'm going to take that lady, then I'm going to take on that. Everyone under the power of this principality. Well, I recognize that, okay. So, that, so I get there, and I'm like, for this reason I left you in Crete. To, to set in order the things that are lacking. You know what I mean? I'm like, now I'm here. So I start shouting. You should have killed me when I was young. <laughs> I, get I get like a boost of adrenaline, you know. I'm not your typical evangelist. I'm just like, you should have killed me when I was young. It's too late for you. I'm here now. <laughs> and I'm not leaving. So I start shouting, I'm never leaving. <laughs> now that I'm here, you just better leave because I'm here and the gospel comes with me. I am start screaming my lungs out. And I, so as I get an adrenaline rush and I'm shouting and chief's all, all happy and... Um, so anyway, it was a powerful meeting, but a meeting where you recognize that the generation needs, needs, they need stewardship. They don't need just fancy pants coming in. They need people with adrenaline, with aggression, with a, who recognize that people are getting hurt in the system here. Someone's going to protect them. Someone's going to shout and do something crazy. Someone's got to. You know, Paul said, preach the gospel in season, not Talk the gospel. Talk the gospel. Just talk the gospel. <laughs> Preach the gospel. There is a time where there's an unction of the Holy Ghost that comes out of you for the generation. Set in order the things that are lacking. And um, so I said to Chief Kanangesha after this meeting, we're sitting down, and, and I said to him, Chief, I said, when last were missionaries here? Now, when I say missionary, I say steward of the kingdom of God. I don't think missionary. People say, oh, you're a missionary. I go, oh my gosh, what is that? What, what is that? that you, what, is the, what is your opinion of a missionary? Because there's been a lot of them. And, and, they, and, and some of them, we've actually said to them, not in our organization, you should, you should head home. <laughs> you should pack up and leave. You're damaging these people. This is not right what you're doing here. And so when I say missionary, I say I'm a steward of the gospel. 
person who came with a voice, with a culture. So I said, when the last two missionaries here? He said, um, I said, oh, just five years ago, I think it was, he said, five years ago, uh, missionaries came from Spain, Spaniards, amongst Kanangesha's people. He said, I gave them 20 hectares of land over there, and he showed me this land that he gave them. They felled the entire teak trees down. They felled it all down, 20 hectares of teak, into, a, into arable farming land. The, the Lunda people are hunter-gatherers. They're not farmers, so that's why the teak's there. They felled all this down, and they created a field. This is what the missionaries did. So, so I said, what did they do when they were here? Because I see the principality. There's a principality here. The missionaries came. Great. What did they do? They, they, they took the 20 hectares, they felled the teak trees, and they planted a paprika field. I was like, paprika? Africans don't eat paprika? I mean, Joburg, but they don't up there, I promise you. Planted a paprika field when the demon's there trying to kill the people? So they planted a paprika field, lasted three years and left and never came back. I was like, for this reason I left you in Crete, to set in order the things we're lacking, not plant a paprika field, people. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? You can, you can approach your generation and come with your social justice philosophies and your nice, nice terminologies of a millennial generation. If, it does, if it's not the core of the kingdom and the gospel of Jesus, it does not work. I promise you, it is a waste of money, a waste of time. It does not affect culture. Those demons that were in those people in Kanangesha were cheering those missionaries on. They were over the moon. They were like, yes, we got missionaries planting paprika fields. We are high-fiving behind their backs. No demon manifesting going to kill those missionaries. I promise you that. And then like all philanthropists that come in the name of Jesus, they only last two or three years. And then gone because the unction of the Holy Ghost that takes you through the seasons, that takes you through the hardships, that takes you through the doldrums, the sailing doldrums, the times where, where all the promises don't look like they're coming through for you. And, and then you're still there. Those seasons, the unction of God takes you through those. The, the two Malawian men, the, the, the glory, the entire kingdom of God manifested in their lives. That vision just pushes you through. And, and then it opens the doors. So, I'll just conclude with that story. Uh, I left that meeting and we went back to, Zambia, back to Livingston for one of our trainings weeks, and then Kanangesha had me come back for his ceremony, and the ceremonies are huge, thousands, the largest ceremony in the nation, actually, of Zambia, with tra traditional tribal ceremony, so I came as the guest of honor to the ceremony, and the only white face there, I was like, it was the only time, you know, there's lots of times that I wish that I wasn't white, because I stand up like a sore thumb, and I don't want to do that, the gospel needs to stand up, not me, you know what I mean, just like, anyway, there, I'm the only white guy, and, sitting there, and, um, and then all these chiefs came from Angola and Congo, these lunders coming in, and um, to, to, to pay homage to Kanangesha and the, and, the, and the chieftain, the lineage from where they found their, their, their families. And, um, and so in lunda tradition, a lunda chief is not allowed to talk to his subjects after he's eaten in the evening. So after they've had their meal, they cannot talk to subjects. Number one, number two, they cannot eat in public. So any Lunda chief, it's, not, it's, not, it's part of their, their protocols. So I know this. And, um, and so me and Jake, who was with me, we eat our meal out together by ourselves, waiting for the chiefs to finish and eat. And I think the night's done because the ceremony's over. Government officials are gone. Thousands of people are walking home. And I've got our vehicle there, and I'm going to drive out of there after that, but I wanted to greet Kanangesha right before I left, and he's busy eating. So I ate outside the area where the chiefs were eating. So Kanangesha runs out, and he says, hey, you and Jake, come in and sit with, with the chiefs, because we've got something very important to do. So I sat in and ate with them, which is like monstrous, it's huge. It's outside of protocol, basically. It's not against the rules. So I um, ate with them, and then Kanangesha said, I want you to to preach to the chiefs. 
before you leave. Another against the rules situation. So um, for 20 minutes, he introduced me to the chiefs, which was interesting how to hear another chief actually describe you. You know what I mean? Okay, this is Philip. This is what he does. So I'm like, okay, what, what do you think I do? You know what I mean? What do you think I do? And you know me, but I mean, how do you know me? There's a, there's a massive cultural different divide here. There's a, there's a white man's gospel in between the two of us. You know, sometimes in Africa, they say it's a white man's gospel. It was brought to us by, by white people. You know what I mean? So there's a white man's gospel in the middle, which we know is not. A, it's not. It's, a, it's the glory of God, but you just don't know what's in between. So he began to introduce me. And he said this to the chiefs. He said, these people do not come here and promise us anything in the natural. They come and fix what is broken in our broken culture. Through an identity that they declare through the life of Jesus Christ for our people. I'm telling you, I began to share on, on, on God's transforming power through, through the blood of Jesus in the identity that he puts within man, the new creation. And, and this, this chieftainess, um, uh, Kalenga, Kalenga, what's her name? Chieftainess Kalenga, I think her name is. She lifts her hand up and she says, man of God. You know, that's what they call, call us up there. Man of God, I have to share. So I said, go ahead, chieftainess. She said, um, so she began to repent publicly for not honoring her people correctly. To the other chiefs, I have not honored my people the way I should have. I've been waiting for them to honor me as chieftainess. I've been expecting their honor instead of honoring them because she understood that the identity, the vision that God was to honor man with his own life. I have mis I've misused my people. And then this other chief said this classic statement. He stopped her and he says, ma'am, from Angola. He's from an Angolan chief. He says, in English, he says, I too have fallen in the hole that God has dug. <laughs> there was his repentance. I too have fallen in the hole that God has dug. I just laughed, giggled to myself. But um, guys, when, you, when we face our generation with, with the life of God, with the facts of the gospel, we don't get distracted and end up on, on uh, miscultures, on trying to define our, gener our Christian culture by our generational culture. We don't get distracted by that. Stay with Christian culture that is ancient, is historic, that is so relevant, and it's so cool, and it's so beautiful, and it's so perfect. That culture, just stay with that. The doors open, you shake the nation, you lead the generation, you rule and reign in every single realm. That's the side effect of it. You understand that? You business guys out there, God called you to do in a realm of, of making wealth for the kingdom of God, to make wealth. You better unlock that realm. You know, get out of your paradigm. Get into the culture of kingdom of God. And, and in there will be, this for this reason I send you to Crete, to set in order the things that are lacking. You will set them in order. You won't be the wannabes. I tried, but it failed. No. You will set in order. You will be the ones that set in order. You will be the providers of jobs, and you will reign financially. Because God has that team, that part of the body and the team in, in this place. And, um, and he has it for you. Um, I'll, close, I'll close by, by saying this, that the central theme of the gospel is the new creation. It's what Jesus said. He said, I will tear this temple down and I will rebuild it in three days. This is the new creation. He's like, that's the theme. That's you. He built you. You're not a product in design, in making. He finished the work. You are the product of his redemption. You're 100% proof perfect. You are him. You are the touch of God. You are it. If you'd live an inferior quality of life to that, it's your unbelief that drives you, not his half job. The gospel simply is about his work in you. When we, Sharon and I were in Israel at our new launched base in Palestine, 
we got revved twice by the IDF, by the way, while, while we were there. Um, they bombed and rocked the neighborhood we were in. But um, we went to, um, to Calvary and uh, to this house, the, the, to, the, to, the, to the, what's that, the Mount of the Skull, wherever he was buried and where, he, and where his cross was. And you get there and you realize, like, that's 2,025 years prior to Jesus' death on that cross, on that mountain. Abraham brought Isaac to that very spot. You know what I mean? This is, a, this is a story that is so perfect that God said to Abraham, you know, you, know, you know the Bible says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Abraham loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. He was the first. You know, there was a story, a redemptive story. Abraham, God said to him, I will give you Seed like the sand of the sea and the stars of the heavens. But that seed is, is, is your son. And he's got to lay the seed, has to go in the ground before you get the stars. And the same way that God would, would, would start that, that covenant in motion in man, would give him permission to come 2,000 years later with his own son. That was the covenant through which God worked. Abraham's was the reason God gave his son Jesus was because man gave his only begotten son to Abraham. But it was on the same spot. Abraham, the Bible says, took his son to Mount Moriah. Mount Moriah was Golgotha. <laughs> it was Calvary. All those years ago, when there was nothing in Jerusalem, there was no people, it was a mountain. He brought his son and put him, and on that place came, came the ram in the thicket. That very spot. All those years later, Jesus, you think, you think the gospel's made up? You think man can make that up? 2,025 years later, the story's still unfolding perfectly, perfectly. And Jesus dies on the very day. If that Pontius Pilate is saying to him, I find no fault in you, just next door, the high priest looking at the lamb for that year's sacrifice and said, no fault in this one. Very day. The drama was perfect. The timing, perfect. Our gospel, our redemption, perfect. Don't, don't, don't fog up the truth by the generation you live in, by, the, by, the, by the, the perfect highways and the busy life that you're in. The generation is in disorder. You bring order. Your life brings order. Through the new creation, don't jump and start making paprika fields in the name of change. Do you know what I'm saying? So praise God. Let's all stand up this morning.